But let's get into the Word of God here this morning. If you would please open with me to Romans chapter 6. And this is going to be the last time that you're going to hear me say this for quite some time for two reasons. One, I'll be going on sabbatical, will not be preaching over those Sundays. But two, uh, we are bringing Romans chapter 6 to a conclusion this morning. Uh, We've been walking through it. Um, All of Scripture is inspired of God. It is all profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, But as you read through the scriptures, some sections of scripture focus more in on a particular topic than other scriptures do. And here in Romans chapter 6, and as we then later in the fall this year get to Romans chapter 7 and 8, these verses, or excuse me, these chapters here really focus in on the Christian life. Truths that we need to know so that we can continue to live faithfully for the Lord. And so I pray that walking through Romans 6... I believe that today makes about our 10th sermon as we've been going through this chapter here. I pray that the Lord has used it in your life just to encourage you and to to let you know what God has done for you in Christ. And so we've been looking over these past few Sundays over verses 15 to 23. And our text this morning is going to be verses 22 and 23. And the theme of these verses from verse 15 to the end of the chapter is distinct. Living a distinct life as Christians here in this world. And the way that we are to do that, the way that we live distinct lives in this world, is by pursuing after righteousness. We're not just kind, we're not just polite, we're not just civil. All those things are good. Christians will do those things. But our lives are to look different from the world around us as we pursue after righteousness. And so that's what we, what we have been looking at. As Paul has posed that question, as others have probably asked that question in verse 15, Hey, are we continuing sin because we're not under law but under grace? Meaning... Hey, don't expect me to live up to any standard because the law is done away with. I'm under grace. Leave me alone. And Paul says, absolutely not. And so we've been walking through this text here. We've seen in verse 16 the foundation to to live a distinct life. And that foundation is is that God has done for us what he's uh, called us to do. Uh, And that's the reality as well. He has called us to, to live distinctly, to live righteously. But praise God that in Christ, He has made us righteous in Christ. And praise God, as we will even see today, that He has made us servants of righteousness. And so this is a work that He has done in our lives. And so we saw then in verse 19 that we are to make the decision then to live distinctly. Yes, God has done this work within us, but now we're to live that out. In Christ, we are righteous. In Christ, we are holy. But now we are to live that out and express it in our lives. So that is a decision that we must make each and every day that the Lord gives us. And that is that we want to become better saints, that we want to become better Christians, not more Christian, not more holy, but we want to become better, better at expressing what God has done for us in Christ. And so starting with uh, last Sunday, we looked at the motivations that Paul gives us here at the end of this chapter to live distinctly. And we see that Paul gives two types of motivations uh, in these final verses, and that is negative and positive. A negative uh, motivation is dissuasion from pursuing after righteousness. Hey, if you pursue after sin, it's only going to lead to greater harm in your life. And so that's the negative part that Paul is warning us about. But then the positive encouragement is that we are to pursue after righteousness. And so that is where we're going to be at today in verses 22 and 23. And we're going to be turning our attention this morning to the positive uh, motivations. And if I could just help us understand these motivations a little bit better, 
Uh, my wife and I, when we were dating, we were both individually just going to, to our own gyms and working out and exercising, you know, wanting to have a healthy body and all that kind of good stuff. And then after we got married, we decided, hey, let's just start going to the same gym and let's work out together. And so we started doing that, but we quickly realized that wasn't going to work out because we motivated each other differently. As Jamie was exercising, my motivation was, come on, you can do better than that. Don't bring that into this house. Try harder, do better. And she didn't like that. And then when she was motivating me, she was like, oh, honey, you're doing such a great job. Uh, and even if you can't lift this weight, I still love you. And, you know, just kind of deflated me. It's like, oh, man. Okay, thanks. So we learned, all right, we're going to work out separately again because our motivations were different. Well, that's what we have here. Paul, last Sunday when he motivated us, it was to look at that negative part of it and to say, hey, be, be warned here. Don't go down this path. But now he's going to turn his attention to the positive aspects to uh, positively encourage us and motivate us to pursue after righteousness. So let me read here. Since this will be our last time here in this text, let me start back in verse 15. Read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we uh, do praise you. We thank you for the time that we have had here this morning so far to, uh, to be able to celebrate in, in the lives of those who have uh, reached a, a milestone in their lives of graduation. Just do pray, God, that you would watch over uh, those, and that you would lead them in the future. And Father, to lift up our voices in praise to you. Thank you for, for voices. Thank you for the ability to sing, the ability to play instruments. And so that we might sing out our praises to join in with the angels and the saints in heaven who are gathered around your throne now and singing out praises to you. And Father, now as we come to this time of hearing you from your word, Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, lead us in the truth that is found here. Oh God, that we would see these motivations that you have given to us to, to pursue after righteousness. Thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. And Father, I pray that by your Spirit that we would be enabled uh, to live this out so that our lives would be uh, lives that bring glory to you in all that we do. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. And so again, last Sunday we looked at the negative fruit, the negative motivation. That was the fruit of sin. 
And there, to motivate Christians to live distinctly, Paul called to mind the the fruit of sin. He reminded us of the bitter taste of sin's fruit. Uh, He reminded us of the shameful feeling of sin's actions. And then at the end, he reminded us of sin's fruit and how deadly it is, that it leads only to death. But now in verse 22, he is going to turn his attention again to the positive motivation, to the fruit of holiness. And so here we're going to see four motivations, four positive motivations that Paul gives us, that God gives us to pursue after righteousness, to live distinctly. And so we see the first of those here at the beginning of verse 22, when he says, but now that you have been set free from sin. And so the first motivation is that live distinctly because you are free from sin. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because this freedom from sin has been a regular thread, a regular thought for Paul throughout this chapter 6. But let me just make two points here, two things quickly. First of those is this, is that this freedom from sin is freedom from the power of sin. We have seen this over the past several weeks as we have walked through this chapter And this freedom from the power of sin, this took place at conversion. It took place at conversion for Christians. If you're here today and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, whenever that was for you, be it recently, be it decades ago, God freed you from the power of sin. And upon faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit united you to Christ. In fact, just look real quick back at Romans chapter 6 verses 5 and then 7, so that we're reminded of this. In verse 5 it says, For if we have been united with Him, referring to Christ, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And then look at verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So brothers and sisters in Christ, be reminded that your old self, which was enslaved to sin, it died upon that vital union with Christ. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says here in this section of Romans chapter 6. Listen to what he, how he puts it. He says, Sin in the Christian is no longer our master. It is just a nuisance. Sin now simply becomes a nuisance and annoyance in his life and in his living When the Christian sins, he sins because he has just been foolish enough to listen to a voice to which he does not need to listen to at all. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, be reminded you're free from the power of sin. And now sin in your life is an annoyance. It is a nuisance. We do not need to listen to it. But that brings me to the second thing that I want to say. And that is this freedom from sin is not freedom from the presence of sin. And that's why it is a nuisance. That's why it is an annoyance. Because it is still present with us. As Christians, we still carry uh, within ourselves the presence of the body of sin, as Paul puts it there in verse 6 of chapter 6. And this is the reality of living in this life. That we will daily carry around with us this body of sin, this sinful nature. Now the day will come when our bodies are going to be glorified and sin is completely 
rid from our bodies. But until then, until then, we are going to face temptation. Sin will be an annoyance, a nuisance for us. Let me just jump ahead because it won't be until this fall that we get here, but just listen to Paul's own testimony regarding his Christian life. Look over at Romans chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. And so the Apostle Paul, he writes, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, I don't have time to cover this text. Again, we will get to it later this fall. But Paul is not excusing his sin. Paul is already, again, we need to go back to Romans chapter 6. There is no excuse for sin in the Christian's life. But Paul is very honest about the presence of sin uh, still with the Christian. That we have the desire to do what is right. And that is the work of God within us. The the, the testimony of the the Spirit's present within us. But then we still have that sinful body that we carry around with us. And beckoning us to go back to the old ways. And so Paul is very honest about that. So this freedom from sin, it is freedom from the power of sin, but it's not freedom from the presence of it. But brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a motivation for us. I pray that as we have walked through Romans chapter 6, again, this has been a common theme here, but I pray that it just gets ingrained in your mind so that when you have been tempted over these past several weeks, as you will be tempted over the next several weeks, that one of the first things that the Spirit will call to your mind because you have hidden this in your heart is that you are now dead to sin, that you are now alive in Christ. That's the first motivation, to pursue after righteousness. But then notice next here in verse 22, the second motivation that we have. And immediately there Paul says, and have become slaves of God. And this is the second motivation, and here we see that live distinctly. Because you are a servant of God. You have been made His servant. You have been made His slave. Now previously, Paul referred to Christians as slaves of righteousness. When you look there at verse 18, that is the phrase that he he used. We've been made slaves of righteousness. And that reference there in verse 18 is to what Christians are servants of. Righteousness. But here in verse 22, when Paul says you are now slaves of God, you've been, in fact, a better way to put this for the Greek text is you have been enslaved to God. This has been done to you. And here this reference is to whom Christians are servants. Now the meaning is the same there from verse 18 that we've been enslaved to righteousness and enslaved to God, the meaning is the same. But here in verse 22, it is so much more personal, it's so much more relational, reminding us to whom we are servants. Now, a couple of Sundays ago, I said that God made us slaves, not by force, but by grace. 
And I said that God does not sell us to the highest bidder, but He has purchased us at the highest cost. And God does not put us in a shack to live, but He has brought us into His house. This is the God that we've been enslaved to, that we have been made servants of. Now, a popular TV movie genre in my house is British shows that depict England from about the 16th century up until about the 19th century. So from like the 1500s to the 1800s, early 1900s. I don't know what you watch in your house. This tends to be what we gravitate towards. And one aspect of those shows depicting that particular time in England's history, one of the aspects of that time is estates, big houses, big mansions, which there are servants within it. And those servants, they they serve the family and they serve the estate. Now, one popular PBS Masterpiece series, I probably don't even have to mention it, you probably know what it is, uh, but the Downton Abbey series, it depicted that life for us from the end of the 1800s going into the early 1900s. And what's so interesting about that particular series is that it covers this, that transitional period in England's history. At the end of the 1800s, you did begin to see these great estates beginning to crumble. Money was beginning to go from the nobles, from the rich, and just kind of being spread out. And that system of having nobles and servants was kind of had run its course. But it had entered into the 1900s for some of these estates. And so it depicts this transition that's going on. And one of the characters in this series is a man named Mr. Carson. And Mr. Carson had been a servant pretty much his whole life. And he had served a particular family, the Crowley family, for most of his servanthood. And Mr. Crowley had risen to the ranks of being the butler, head of the estate, basically, over the servants. Mr. Carson oversees the servants, and he, was, and he personally served the lord of the estate, or of the manor, who was Mr. Crowley. Now, other servants uh, in that house, they're, they're discontent with their position. They're ashamed of being called servants. They want to go out and, and leave the estate and take on other jobs. But Mr. Carson stands out. Because he does not consider it a shame to be a servant. He doesn't consider it a shame to be a servant in this great estate. But rather, Mr. Carson, he really esteemed it an honor. An honor to serve such a grand estate as that of Abbey, of Downton Abbey. And to serve its lord, Mr. Crowley. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is no shame for us to be called slaves of God. That is not a term, that is not a distinction that is used of Christians to put them down, to put them in their place. But brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no greater honor 
that could be bestowed upon us than to be called servants of Christ. And we serve in the greatest of estates, and that is the kingdom of God. And we serve the most noblest of lords, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, here when you are told that you have been enslaved to God, this is what God did to you at your conversion. Again, whenever that day was for you, yes, you were freed from sin, but you were then immediately enslaved to God. But what greater honor could you receive than to serve Him, to serve in His kingdom? Oh, what motivation that is for us to live distinctly in this life. To show that we do have a great king, a noble king. And so we pursue after him each and every day. But then Paul gives us here a third motivation. And there also in verse 22, he says, The fruit you get leads to sanctification. And here the third motivation is that we are to live distinctly because we are being sanctified. This is what God is currently doing in your life as a Christian, in my life as a Christian. Now I love what Paul is doing here because as we saw last Sunday, Paul used the fruit to talk about the fruit of sin and what it would bear in our lives and just how bitter it was and how deadly it is. But now he turns our attention to godly fruit, sanctified fruit. Now just by way of reminder, sanctification, as it's used here in the text, sanctification is growth in holiness. It's not being more holy, but it is living more holy. That is something that we must realize as Christians. We are holy in Christ but we can live more holy in our lives each day. And here in this text here, in this verse that we're looking at in verse 22, this clause here, this clause of the fruit you get leads to sanctification, it is really uh, dependent and related to the previous two clauses that we have just looked at. In fact, we might translate the beginning of verse 22 here this way. We could put it this way, because you have been freed from sin and because you have been enslaved to God, you are bearing fruit that leads to sanctification. Oh, what we're being told here in the Word of God is that freedom from sin and slavery to God are the causes that lead to the effect of producing fruit, of producing godly fruit. Now, the reason that this happens is that the Christian, as, we, as I pointed us back to just a moment ago, is that the Christian has been united with Christ. In fact, if you just look one more time at verse 5 of chapter 6, when he says, For if we have been united with Him. If we've been united with Him. Now, that phrase or that word that Paul uses back there in verse 5 when he talks about our union with Christ it really brings up this image of being grafted onto Christ. Let me ask you a question. 
What does a lemon tree produce? Yeah, not, not a trick question, I promise. What does a lemon tree produce? Lemons. What does an orange tree produce? Oranges. Now, what if I, if I were a master gardener, and I'm not, but if I were a master gardener, and I were to cut off a branch from a lemon tree, and I were to then graft it onto a broken branch of an orange tree, if I do it right, supply all the proper nutrients, what is that lemon branch grafted onto an orange tree going to produce? Loranges. No, not loranges. It is going to produce oranges. Now, I looked it up on the internet, so the internet doesn't lie, right? There's all sorts of rules if you're a horticulturalist or whatever you gardeners are called. You know way more about this than I do. You got all the families of fruits you have to be able to do this to, but you can graft oranges, lemons, put one onto the other tree and it will produce what that tree is. It's just amazing what God is, how God has created this world. What's even more amazing is how God uses the examples around us as Jesus told His parables and He drew from just the world around the people to teach a spiritual lesson. Well, the same is true with grafting a lemon branch onto an orange tree and it will produce oranges. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, we once were branches of the old man, Adam. And the only fruit that we could produce in our lives was the bitter fruit of sin. But God, who is the master gardener, He cut us off from the old man and He grafted us onto the new man, Jesus. And because Jesus is righteous... Those grafted onto Him bear the sweet fruit of holiness. You see, it's not the branch that determines the fruit, it's the tree. And we've been united with Christ. We've been grafted onto Christ. In fact, just look real quick, two passages. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Paul there says, for as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's us. When we were connected with Adam, born into this world, we bore the fruit of sin. But then notice, so by the one man's obedience, and that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And that's the followers of Christ. We have been grafted on to Him. But maybe more of what you were thinking about as I was using that example of being grafted is turn with me to John chapter 15. Such a wonderful passage here. One that you probably know well. On that last night that Jesus had with His disciples at that final supper that He had with them on the eve of His crucifixion, He is teaching them 
and such wonderful truths are found here, starting there in John 13, running through John 17. But here Jesus uses that parable of, and that image of a vine, of a grape vine, as they were scattered throughout Israel. But look at particularly two verses, five and eight. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Then look down at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you are united with Jesus, grafted on to Him, you bear godly fruit. You bear fruit for God's glory because you have been united with the righteous branch, with the righteous tree who is Christ. Now there is no doubt that that we will go through times of bearing less godly fruit and at times more godly fruit. But I want you to remember Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. You don't need to to turn there. But there in those two verses, we are told that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That is, we are to live out our salvation is what Paul is telling us. That's verse 12. And we are to work out our salvation, live out our salvation grow in holiness and in living out holiness and in godliness in our lives. And the reason we are to do it and the reason we can do it is because of verse 13. Because God is at work within you. As one who has been united to Christ, God is at work within you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Oh, that is what God's doing in your life, brothers and sisters in Christ. The desire that you have for obedience, to live for His glory, that doesn't come about within you because you're such a good person. No, that is what God's doing in you. And the power that you have to do it, yes, we are responsible to do it. But it is God who is working in you to do it. The desire, the power. That is sanctification. That is what God is doing within us. And if I could just keep that image of a fruit tree in our minds, we need to provide the necessary elements to help the tree grow and produce fruit. We've already been grafted onto Christ. We have all that we need, and God is going to accomplish this, but we still have a responsibility. And if you do have a garden in in your backyard of whatever type it may be, flower, fruit, vegetable, I know there's times that you go out and you just observe it. You look at it and you're looking for signs of of disease, signs of, of insects eating at it. You have examination of your garden. And when you see that something is wrong, you tend to it. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to examine our lives. We ought to examine our lives to see what fruit we are bearing. Do we see the godly fruit being born in our lives that bring glory to God? 
Or does our branch seem a little bit fruitless for the moment? Not bearing as much as it once did. And then we need to stop and say, well, why is that? Well, it's not because God has stopped working in you. It's not because He has stopped giving you the desire. It's not because He has stopped giving you the power. But it might be because we've been resisting it. Not giving ourselves to the things that are needed. And just as trees and gardens need water and need nutrients, need sunlight, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need prayer, we need Bible reading, we need involvement in church, we need godly friends, we need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. When we neglect any of these, we're withholding what is needed for us to bear that fruit. So Paul here, he's motivating us. He's motivating us because he's saying God is sanctifying you. God is doing this work within you. Give yourself to it. But then we come to the last motivation. And it's found here at the end of the verse, verse 22. And notice here what he says, And its end, eternal life. And the final motivation is this, live distinctly because its end is life. Now you might recall from last Sunday, even just looking at the text here in your Bible, Paul spoke of the fruit of sin. He says that fruit of sin, it only leads to more sin, leads to more lawlessness. And then ultimately it leads to death. But the contrast here, is that this fruit, this godly fruit, it leads to greater sanctification and it ends in life. You see, the effect of being freed from sin and the effect of being enslaved to God, it not only leads to our sanctification, producing godly fruit, but it also leads to eternal life. Now, we need to be clear here. Do not misunderstand what the Apostle is saying, what, what I am saying here. Paul is not saying that godly living results in eternal life. That is a works-based mentality, a works-based salvation, which in the end is no salvation at all. But let us be reminded, if you turn back with me to Romans chapter 4, in verses 4 and 5. Such wonderful verses here that speak to being justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And you see there in verse 4 of chapter 4, it says, Now to the one who works, that is to the one who is, who is, living a, who is trying to live according to God's law, the one who is trying to be a good person, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Works will never save us. 
Faithfulness will never save us. I've said this before, but let me just say it again. Our salvation is not founded upon our faithfulness to Christ. Our salvation is only founded upon our faith in Christ. In that alone. I love how Vody Bauckham put it. He says, you can't confuse what the gospel produces with what the gospel requires. Obedience is what the gospel produces, but not what the gospel requires. No, the gospel requires faith. And when you place your faith in Christ, oh, God does a tremendous work within you, frees you from sin, enslaves you to himself, gives you his spirit, so that we can and will live lives and bear fruit for his glory. No, what we must realize is that the Word of God is telling us that those who bear godly fruit are those who have eternal life. Those who are bearing godly fruit, not just being nice and polite and civil, again, all good things, but bearing godly fruit according to the Word of God. Oh, it is that person who shows they have eternal life. And just just to help us to understand this, let me just give us three quick terms here. The first is justification. We've seen this word come up in Paul's letter. I've used it before, defined it before, but let me just define it one more time. Justification. Justification is the work of God's grace alone. That upon faith alone in Christ alone, God declares the sinner righteous and forgiven. So justification is when you place your faith in Christ alone, God declares you righteous and He declares you forgiven. We might say for the Christian is that that is what took place in our past, though still true of us always. But when you place your faith in Christ in the past, at that moment, God says, you are righteous in my Son. You are forgiven of your sin. But then the second term is that of sanctification, as we've seen Paul use it now over these past few verses. And sanctification is the work of God's grace, whereby the Christian is renewed in himself, in herself, into the image of God. God is forming us to look more like himself, to look more like Christ in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our, in our talk, in our actions. And in this sanctification, we are enabled more and more to, to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. It continues from the moment that you are saved until the moment that you die or until the moment that Christ returns. So our sanctification, it, it is what's presently true of us, what is happening now. But then glorification, this third term. Glorification is the completion of what God began when He saved us, when He regenerated us. And mainly what that means is is that our moral and spiritual reconstitution, or that we are morally and spiritually reconstituted so that we perfectly and permanently are conformed to Christ. Well, that is the day that we long for. 
when our bodies are raised up, no more with sin, but with a heart that always wants to do the will of God. Well, that's our glorification. And we can look at that as our future, our past, our present, our future. Now, I walk through those three terms for this reason, is that Paul connects these three terms. The Word of God connects these three terms together. Look with me over at Romans chapter 8, which one day, Lord willing, we will reach. But Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Oh, I can't wait to get to chapter 8. But we're not going to jump past chapter 7 because I can't wait to get there either. But Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Listen to this. For those whom He, this is God the Father, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Well, that's our sanctification. This is the reason why God has saved us. To look more like His Son, to to grow us into the likeness of His Son here in this world. So to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That refers to Christ. And then verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, what we see here in these two verses, and you'll begin to see it in other places of the Scripture, is that our justification, sanctification, and glorification, they are always linked together, and they can never be separated. To have one is to have them all. To not have one is to not have any of them. You see, our justification, our justification is the guarantee of our glorification. If you ever wonder, God, will you glorify me on that day when Christ returns? God is going to say, yes, because I have already justified you. And our glorification, it is the result of our justification on that day in glory. I don't know if we're going to be able to look back, but we might be able to look back and just to praise God to say, God, thank you for taking a sinner and saving me. And our justification, it is the cause of our sanctification. If you wonder, God, are you going to work within me to look more like your son in this life? And God is going to answer, yes, because I have already justified you. And so our sanctification, it is the effect of our justification. You are growing in Christ because you've been grafted onto Him. And our sanctification, it is the expression of our glorification. We know that one day we're going to permanently look like Christ. And so now what we do is that we want now to look more like Him in our life. And so our glorification, it is the motive for our sanctification. To say, God, you're going to do this perfectly and permanently one day. And so God, now, today, continue that work. So brothers and sisters in Christ, take heart. Take heart because when God saved you, whenever that was for you, In that moment when God saved you, 
He put into motion your sanctification and He sealed your glorification. And the reason why is because it's all because of Christ. We are justified through Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. And we will be glorified by Christ. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, look to Christ always. And I say that because as we've been walking through Romans 6, I know it's probably been stirring up some things with you. Like, you just look at your life and you're like, oh man, I am, I'm just kind of pathetic. Man, I, I'm still struggling with sin, with temptation of sin. Again, we'll get to Romans 7 here in this fall. I know we can look at our lives and it just seems like we continue to see sin in our lives. Brothers and sisters in Christ, even when your sanctification seems slow, and even when your sanctification seems stagnant, look to Christ. Thomas Wilcox, he was a 17th century English Baptist pastor. He said, let sin break your heart, but not your hope in the gospel. Oh, yes, sin breaks our heart. But brothers and sisters in Christ, sin doesn't break the promise that God has made to us in His Son, Jesus. And why is that? Well, Romans 6, 23. And man, we could spend a whole Sunday on this verse. But Romans 6.23, what a way to wrap up this section that Paul's been dealing with when he says, for the wages of sin is death. Wages is what you deserve. We see Paul use this, we saw early in Romans 4, Paul used this similar terminology. Your good works, you're only going to get what you do. The wages for your sin, it's eternal death. Eternal damnation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that was us at one day, on one day. On that day of judgment without Christ, we would have stood before God and pleaded for however good we think we were. And God will say, I'm going to give you what you deserve, since that is what you're begging for. And what you deserve is judgment eternally. Then he says, but the free gift of God. That word right there, gift, it's really a word for grace. That gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, our sin doesn't break the promise of God because He has given us a gift. We all know that with fathers here on earth, good fathers here on earth, when they give something to their children, even when their children have disobeyed, they don't take those gifts away. And especially our Heavenly Father will not. Well, we have been saved by the grace of God. And what greater motivation to pursue after righteousness, what greater motivation to live distinctly in this life than what God has done for us in Jesus. 
Let us pray.